Numbers, Numbers 16. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take a black pew Bible. It should be one in front of you. Page 146. We finished our passion study, the greatest week of the greatest life, and we're going to study number 16 and 17 today. We'll look at the church next week, and after Mother's Day, we'll pick up with the book of Exodus and start there. Numbers chapter 16. Read along with me. Now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Koath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with the number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord cho chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near to him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. It is a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of the men? We'll, we will not come up. So Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. Verse 16, And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer. 250 censers, you also and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Now look at verse 25. Then Moses rose and went to Datham, and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling. They got away from the dwelling of Korah, of Datham, and Abiram. And Datham and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that this has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something, something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belong to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Number 16, I want you to read that along with me. It's a, we're a narrative text. When you're doing a narrative genre, 
you have to uh, do big sections. And uh, so soon we'll be in the book of Exodus and we'll be doing that. So you'll have to read ahead um, if you'd like. Uh, I think it's helpful to be able to do that, read ahead, and then we'll read back through part of the text. Sometimes we just don't have time to read all of it, as, as was the case today. But Numbers chapter 16 and 17, we, we've had a, um, a good day today and got to minister to some people, some people in our community that came to the church having some needs, needing to, um, some, to be prayed for and, and otherwise. So it's been a good day of men's breakfast. Our ladies are in... Uh, some of them are in Indianapolis. They'll be leaving. Uh, they probably already left, heading back, so they'll be back later this evening. But I'm excited about this text. I've always wanted to teach this text, and as I read through it, and some of you are like, wow, that's kind of, that's kind of wild. And the Bible is, is really interesting. Uh, and if you don't have a habit, if you have children and you don't have a habit of, uh, of reading to your children, I'll encourage you to do so, especially if you have little ones reading stories. Um, it benefits your children. They, they hear uh, about the Lord and what he's done for his people. And uh, this story is, is uh, I'm really excited about what we're going to learn today. It's God's way or no way. We're talking about the exclusivity of the gospel today. And, you know, Christianity, which Christians, we yield, we submit to the authority of Scripture. And Scripture teaches us that all are sinners, as, as Phil has already taught us this morning. We're separated from the Lord who's holy, and we don't have a relationship with Him because of our sin. And if it's dependent on us, we'll never have a relationship with Him because we can't do anything to fix our sin problem. But God, who is merciful, gave us a way that we could be reconciled to Him apart from ourselves. He sent his son, Jesus, who took on flesh, and he lived the perfect life that we must live and that we couldn't live. And then he died the death that we all should die. Then on the third day, he rose from the dead, as we celebrated last week, and he wants to give sinners this resurrection life. Well, how does that happen? Sinners separated from a holy God, how, do we, how are we reconciled to him? Well, it's only by repenting of our sin and trusting Christ's work on the cross and also trusting his work in the tomb, right, for us. Now, that word only is really, really important. How are we reconciled to a holy God, a sinner and a holy God reconciled only through faith in Christ? Now, my parents, they live just a, a few miles from here, live on Beaver Road, 3053 Beaver Road is where they live. And, and I grew up hunting behind our house my whole entire life. And in fact, if you go out these front doors, you look up, there's a ridge that sticks out there. And if you come behind my parents' house, not very far, a five-minute walk, you'll be on the end of that ridge. And in the fall of the year, when there's no leaves on the tree, you can see the church very clearly. In fact, if you want to get to my parents' house, you can just take a shortcut. We can walk straight across here, and we'll get there in, in 10 minutes really quickly. But if you wanted to drive, so you could walk there that way, but if you wanted to drive, there's really only one way you can get to their house. Only one way, and that's down Beaver Road. You could walk to get there numerous different ways. But if you drive, you have to go down Beaver Road. Now, you could go this way up to Nazarene Church and take a right going south, or you could come around Plantation Road and make the loop, and then you could drive up north off Double Bridges Road, but you have to. There's only one way to drive to their house. That's Beaver Road. There's only one road. There are no exceptions. When being reconciled to a holy God, there is only one way to do it. Only one way. We call that the exclusivity of the gospel. There's only one way, and that's through faith in Jesus. Recent research conducted jointly by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, they partnered together, and, and they did this research and a survey that tells us that a lot of Americans aren't really sure about that. They don't really embrace the exclusivity of the Christian gospel. In fact, they found 
that 45% of Americans think that there are many ways to get to heaven. 45%. And 71% agree that an individual must contribute to his or her own it must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation. Now as Christians, we affirm the exclusivity of the gospel. In fact, Jesus affirms it in John 14:6. Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus telling us that, teaching us that he is the only way, we know that knowing God is not a matter of preference, you know, where I can come to God however I want to because all roads lead to God as long as you are sincere. But they're so sincere. But they can be sincerely wrong, can't they? To say such a thing is, is not biblical teaching. That should be rejected. It should be corrected. And some would, would say that to hold this view is very narrow-minded. Some think Christians are arrogant when we say that we followers of Jesus get it right and everyone, everyone else has it wrong. In fact, I'm going to read an excerpt from a... Or from a a Donahue episode. You remember Donahue, don't you? <laughs> some of you are going, oh yeah. And then some of you are going, I have no idea. Uh, Donahue was before uh, Oprah and uh, I don't know who even does it now. Jerry Springer, before those people. And he, was, he had the talk show. And so he had Dr. Albert Moeller, who's president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, and, and they were talking about the exclusivity of the gospel. And so let me read this to you. Donahue says, so a good Jew... It's not going to heaven. Is that what you're saying? And Dr. Muller says, well, all persons are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is a sole mediator. And the gospel, we are told by the Apostle Paul, comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. And salvation is found in his name and in his name alone through faith in Christ. Phil Donahue says, so if a Nazi killed a Jew, a good Jew, a practicing Jew, the Jew goes to hell, but the Nazi still has a chance to get to heaven. That would be the consequence of your position. Dr. Moeller replies, well, the gospel is not just for the worst of us. The gospel is for all of us. And the scripture tells us the hard truth that we all have sinned. And the Nazi guard is going to be punished for his sin, and it will be judged as sin. His only hope will be the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And the profound truth of the gospel is that salvation that can come to any person who comes to faith in Christ can come to that Jew who was killed and to that guard who does the killing. That's the radical nature of the gospel. So Phil Donahue Lastly, replies this way. This just breeds anti-Semitism. I'm sorry. You cannot possibly look at a person in the eye and say, if you don't come to Jesus, if you don't change your faith, you're not going to heaven. Reeks of prejudice and also stirs the soul to evil behavior, in my opinion. And that would be the opinion of many folks, wouldn't it? In our culture today. What would you say if I said... My parents live at 3053 Beaver Road, and you can only get there by driving. If you're going to drive, you can only get there by driving down Beaver Road. You wouldn't get upset because that's the truth. There is no other way. So what else can you say? To get to my parents' house, you have to drive down Beaver Road. In order to be reconciled to a holy God, you have to trust in Christ alone. <laughs> By exclusivity of the gospel, we mean that only those who personally, consciously, explicitly, and singularly confess Jesus Christ as Lord can have eternal life. C.S. Lewis, he says, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is just moderately important. Mr. Mickey, you like that statement, don't you? And the same can be true about the exclusivity of the gospel. This, this notion that 
there's only one way to be saved, and that's through faith in Christ, is a concept which is, if, if false, is of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is just moderately important. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to a holy God. That's really, really important for us as Christians. If Jesus is the only way, Jesus is pretty important. And, it, and isn't that the goal? For Christ to be exalted, right? For, for Christ to be of utmost importance means he gets all the glory. And isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal of it all? To give him glory? To make him look good? Jason Allen, he leads the seminary, Midwestern Seminary, where Dave and Rivers went to school. He says, when we're preaching, he says, you know, time just doesn't allow you to teach everything in the text. That's why I love the way our small groups are set up. So we have small groups, we preach, and then the next time the small group gets together, what they do is they talk about the sermon. Because what we do is when we're preaching through a text, we can't teach everything because of time. And so we meet, we, 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 we see it, we meet with, on Tuesday mornings with all the small group leaders, we say we leave a lot of meat on the bones. And so what you get to do is you get to talk through those things and study through and, and talk about the things we didn't talk about clearly or, or, or get to. But he says when you, when you teach a text, when you're preaching, sometimes you have to triage the text meaning you have to pick and choose what you're going to teach. You can't teach everything. You can't exhaust it all. So you have to ask yourself, okay, what can I assume that the people in our church already know? What can I assume? What truths can I already assume that they embrace? Maybe I don't have to hit those, spend so much time on those. I can kind of skip that and spend more time on this truth. But what happens, maybe this has happened so much, when we talk about the exclusivity of the gospel, we've kind of breezed past that. Maybe we do that so much that it's caused our, our people to misunderstand. Maybe we need to get back to emphasizing that more and more every week. And this understanding that, that it's God's way or no way is not just a New Testament concept. That's why we're in the book of Numbers this morning. So you have to come to God the way the Lord determines. You can't come your own way. It's not up to you. You must come to God his way. In, November, uh, in our book uh, of Numbers, 1670, it teaches that this morning. That's our teaching text. So what's the context? November six, uh, num Numbers, sorry, Numbers 1670. What is going on here in the text? The Israelites are, have been rescued from Egypt. Remember Jacob's family got to Egypt because they, uh, the, all the brothers were jealous of Joseph. They sell him into slavery. Aiden, what happens next? He that's right. He forgives his brothers. His brothers, because there's a famine, right? And what did Joseph do? He interpreted dreams. There's going to be a famine in the land. And as a result of the famine, Jacob's family had to come to Egypt to buy food. And why did they have food? Well, because of Joseph. He's put in charge of Egypt. What did he do? For seven years, he stored it up because God was with them. They come to Egypt. Joseph sees his brothers. He reveals himself to them. He forgives them. As Paul correctly stated, and he moves his family to Egypt, and they settle in Goshen. They're there 400 years. The present-day Pharaoh, he doesn't know Joseph. And what's happened, the Abrahamic covenant has begun to be fulfilled. And, and as God told Abraham, remember, look up in the stars of the sky, that's how many children you're going to have. Well, guess what? It started happening in Egypt, and they're having babies left and right. And there's been a population explosion. So Pharaoh has, has afraid of the Israelites. He's oppressed them and enslaved them. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a deliverer and Moses. And he and Aaron, they lead the Israelites out of Egypt. 
And as Moses stands over the waters, he raises his, his arms up over the waters. And as he's doing that, there's a cloud that's separating the pursuing army of Pharaoh and the, and the poor defenseless Israelites. And as he raises his hands over the, the waters, what do the waters do? They part, allowing the Israelites to walk through on dry ground. And then God allowed those waters to, to go back, drowning the Egyptian army. So the Israelites, they travel to the promised land, the land that God has promised them in the Abrahamic covenant. On the way, just so happened, they stop by Mount Sinai. God gives the law to Moses. He delivers it to the people. They come up to the edge of the promised land. God's promised them this land. Do they go in and take the land? No, because they didn't trust the Lord. So guess what? They're wondering. And how long are they going to wonder in the desert, in the wilderness? How many years? 40 years, yeah. So that's what they're doing right now. They're wandering in the desert. That's the context of our, of our um, teaching text this morning. So a couple things we're going to learn from our teaching text. Number one is by rejecting Moses and Aaron's leadership, the Israelites were rejecting God and his authority over their lives. So in the first few verses, we already read the text. We see some descendants of Levi. This is Korah and his family. And then some descendants of Reuben. That's Dathan and Abiram and their family. They come to... Moses and Aaron, they have a problem. Now, they shouldn't have a problem because, first off, Reuben is the firstborn son. And with the firstborn, there always comes extra blessings, right? But they weren't satisfied with that. And Korah, he's a Levite, and Levites were given special privilege. They were put in charge of the tabernacle and taking care of the worship. Well, they're not, they're not satisfied either. And so they come to Moses and they complain. Korah thinks this is all a bunch of hogwash. He thinks Moses is arrogant. He's jealous of Moses. He doesn't want to take orders from Moses. He doesn't want to listen to Moses. He feels like he's just as qualified as Moses and just as capable as Moses and Aaron. Who are you? You've taken this too far. Is what he says. And, and Korah is acting as if Moses was this self-appointed, egotistical, power-hungry person. I mean, when I'm reading this story, the first thing I thought of was the burning bush. What happened at the burning bush? Moses said everything, God, pick me. I want to lead them sorry Israelites out of Egypt. Is that what he said? No. Do you remember what he said? Well, we're going to read it, Exodus 3, 10 and 11. God spoke to Moses. He wants him to be his, the, the, the Israelite leader, the nation uh, of Israel. He wants them to lead them out of Israel. And he says this, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But what did Moses say? Are you kidding me? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's like, you got the wrong guy. Let somebody else do it. And you know what God did? He kind of had to twist his arm. Does God twist arms? But if he, if he has to, he did in this case. Because what he ended up doing is letting Aaron go with him to be his, spoke person, his spokesperson. Because he, Moses actually spoke a lot like me. I'm kind of tongue-tied this morning, right? I can't get my words out. I need a brother to speak for me. He, he told Moses that you can take Aaron with you. And not only that, but he performed these signs and miracles. He said, throw your, throw, your, throw your staff down, Moses. And he throws it down, it becomes a snake. And then he says, hey, put your, put your hand in your cloak. And he does, and then he pulls it out, and it's leprous. He said, now stick it back in there. And he does, and he pulls it out, and it's, it's perfectly fine. So Moses has some motivation, some encouragement to be the, the leader of the nation, to be the prophet for the people, to be the mediator between sinful, the sinful nation and the holy God. But he does it kicking and screaming, but he does it. So Moses was chosen God's uh, leader for the nation. God chose Moses and, and, and allowed him to intercede for the people when the people rebelled. But Moses was a hesitant leader, not a power-hungry leader. But Korah didn't think so. He's fed up with Moses and his leadership. But Moses was a, he was humble and he was meek and he was a, he was a special fella. In fact, Exodus 33, verse 7 through 11, 
Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. You know why they did that? Because Moses is going to hear from God, and he's going to bring back something that they needed to hear. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Why? Because God's fixing to reveal himself to us through its prophet Moses. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses. How? Face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. He didn't want to go anywhere because the Lord just showed up. Moses, was a, he wasn't a power-hungry fellow. He was a hesitant leader, but he was a leader who God had chosen and who spoke with him face to face. The Lord only did that with Moses. See, God didn't speak directly to the nation. He spoke to Moses, and Moses would deliver God's message to the people, much like a prophet. Think about the, the, as they're traveling to the promised land, they come to the Mount, Mount Sinai and God gives them the law. Well, how does he give them the law? Yeah, he, he, he gave it to, first to Moses and Moses spoke to the people and taught the people the law. Exodus chapter 19, verse 17. Verse 17, he says, when, Moses, when God gave Moses the law... Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, that's key, at the foot of the mountain. Who gets to go to the mountain? Who went up on top of the mountain? Moses, right? We know that Joshua was there, Aaron, but the people couldn't. In verse 24 of chapter 19, the Lord said to him, Go down and bring up Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. They couldn't, they couldn't climb the mountain because they would die. So Moses, he was the prophet for the people. He mediated for the people. He stood before them. And this was the Lord's determined way for him to communicate with his people. Could have done it any other way. He chose Moses. This is God's way. Uh, I think I'll just climb the mountain as he's up there giving the, the, the law to Moses. I think I'll just climb that mountain and do what I want to do. Uh -uh. You died if you did that. It's God's way or it's no way, right? Exodus 34, 34 and 35. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. He had this thing going on. I don't know what you call it. It was just glory or something. And people, man, cover that up, buddy. So he had to put the veil on. There was something, you know, special about this relationship. And so when, back to number 16, we get to verse 5 through 7, and Moses tells Korah, he's complaining against Moses, complaining, you're, you're this money, or uh, this, this power-hungry, egotistical leader. Who do you think you are? Moses says, I don't think I'm anybody. Matter of fact, I'm not going to say anything. We'll just let the Lord show us who he wants to, to lead the people. He's not going to argue. Let's just have a test. Let's God, uh, let God show us whom he wants to mediate between he and the people. So they took censers, like a cookie sheet, if you will, a cookie sheet with a handle on it, and it had coals on it. And they would put incense on top of that, and it would, it would burn, and they would wave it in the presence, uh, in, in, the, in the tent of meeting. And it was a fragrant offering to, to the Lord. It was a, a, a form of worship. So we're going to wave these before the Lord, all of us, everybody, everybody that's got a complaint, let's take it before the Lord. Take these sins before the Lord and let's see what the Lord thinks of your worship. See if God accepts you coming before him like you want to, not like he wants you to. In fact, verse 9, Moses tells Korah that the problem is Korah. See, Korah's a Levite. He had special privilege. He got to take care of the things of the, the tabernacle. That's a special place, a special privilege a special position of ministry. But no, that's not enough. 
He don't want to be the manager. He wants to be the he wants to be the executive director, right? You want to come to God like you want to, not how God wants you to. So Moses tells Korah he's got a pride problem, right? Moses says, this isn't what I've established. You've gone too far, Korah, because I didn't set this thing up. This is God's will. It's God's way or it's no way. You know, mankind, we, um, we don't have any problem with religion. People love religion. We all get to heaven our own way. You know, you got this religion, I got this religion, I'm sincere about this thing, you're sincere about that thing. We all get there. In the end, all roads lead to heaven, don't they? People love that. They embrace that. But to say you have to approach God through the cross, that's offensive to folks. They can't handle that. Korah couldn't handle it. Verses 18 through 21, well, what happens? We read the text. So every man took his censer, put fire in it. The glory of the Lord appeared to the congregation. And what did the Lord say? Get back. Get away. Move away from these folks and their families. You need to get back. This fish can get ugly. Moses says in verse 28, if these men die a natural death, If they're visited by the fate of all mankind, in other words, a natural death in verse 29, then the Lord hadn't sent me, then I'm not his chosen leader. I'm not the mediator. I'm not the prophet. But if the Lord creates some, create something new, then you'll know that I'm the prophet. Well, guess what? God had chosen Moses because the ground opens up and swallows Korah and Dathan and their families. And where do they go? They go down to Sishio. That's the place um, for the wicked, right? The resting place of the wicked. See, what God's doing there is you, you try to come to me on your own terms, your way, not my way. God says, not only do I don't, I, I'm going to judge you, but I want you dead now because I don't want you to influence anyone else. Let's read verse 36. And following, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Tell Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest to take up the censers out of the blaze." So they have all these censers. Then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus they shall be a sign to the people of Israel. They shall be a sign. Well, what, what, a sign of what? A sign of death. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar. So not only were the two families, these families of these men that rebelled against the Lord, were they swallowed up by the earth, but the 250 men who also grumbled, fire shot out and consumed them. So take all their censers, we're going to flatten them out, and we're going to cover the altar. Verse 40, it's to be a reminder to the people of Israel that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to, the, to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. So this is the sign of death. This is a warning to the people. Every time you come to the altar, guess what? You're going to see these, these bronze, this bronze covering and know, man, that was, that was censors at one time. Let me tell you about the story you're telling your kids. Let me tell you about Korah and Dathan. We don't want to do that. We don't want to come to God our way. We want to come to God his way. Aaron's going to be the priest. Moses is the, the mediator, the leader, the prophet. Let's just yield to that. Look at verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. They still want to argue. What nerve, huh? And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of the congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put incense on it and made atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. So Moses directed Aaron, he, he went and made atonement for the people, burn incense for the folks that were in rebellion. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. So these, these, the people grumble even after Korah and Dathan are eliminated, judged, the 250 leaders are consumed with fire, they still want to complain, and so God just interrupts the conversation. I don't hear any of this. And he judges the people. But because of the sacrifice of Aaron, death was stopped. And then chapter 17, verse 1 through 7, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and get from the... From them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs according to their house, father's houses, 12 staffs. So one, one staff for each tribe had a little coat of arms on it, little names on it, right? And what he tells them to do is put it in the, the tent of meeting. Leave it there overnight, and we're going to see what happens. Verse 5, And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease for me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. So you've already got the sign of death. You've got the censors that they, they took from all the people who just were eliminated by the Lord, covered the altar. Every time we see that, we're going to remember God's way or no way. But here he gives them another sign. This is the sign of life. We're going to take these, these staves, these rods. What that was is a piece of wood, walking stick. We got one back here. I'm with you. Let me show you. Yeah, like that right there. Now, is that alive? We're going to grow something with that? Yeah. Just like that. Timely, wasn't it? I'm glad you brought that. And we put those in the tent of meeting. We're going to see what happens. And they put all the names on there. And, and Aaron, the tribe of Levi, he had his and put it in there. And guess whose guess who's, who's staff came alive? He said it's going to sprout, and it did. Let's read the text. Not only did it sprout, but it produced fruit. Look at verse 8 of chapter 17. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the, the testimony. Behold, the staff of Aaron from the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. How long does that take naturally? I don't know. I'm not an almond farmer. But more than... Eight hours, I bet you. <laughs> then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, this is interesting. It's a sign. You've got sign of death. is the censers, the covering over the altar, right? And now here's the sign of death. Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die what's the response of the people verse 12 behold we they said we we perish we're undone we're all undone everyone who comes near who comes near to the tabernacle of the lord shall die are we all to perish mission accomplished they stopped grumbling sign of death the censors the sign of life the budding staff After Aaron's staff budded, was there any doubt whom God had chosen to be priest? After the ground swallowed up Korah and Datham and fire shot out and consumed the 250 grumblers, was there any doubt that Moses was the chosen leader? If you reject God's leader in Moses and Aaron, you reject God. 
you reject his authority over your lives. The second point I think we can learn from our text this morning is by rejecting Jesus and his work on the cross, we're rejecting God and his authority over our lives as well. I mean, there's a lot of things we can get wrong. I mean, there's a lot of doctrines, some that maybe we're not, uh, we have some, uh, we understand wrongly, some things we're not real clear about. But we can be wrong on some of these issues and we can still follow the Lord and love the Lord and we can fellowship together. And even on some issues, we don't all agree on these non-essential issues. We have differences of opinion about some of these things. But we can't get this issue wrong. There's only one way that we can be saved and that's through faith in Christ. We can't come to God some other way. And just as Aaron stood between the dead and the dying to make atonement for them after they rebelled, so Christ did. He came. He came that Christmas morning and he took on flesh and he lived this perfect life so that he could become a perfect sacrifice for us. And he was about 33 years old. He became that sacrifice. He died on a cross. He made atonement on the cross for sinners. The Bible tells us that Christ died for sins. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And the sign of death is what? In the new covenant is the cross. But on the third day after he was buried, he rose. And the empty tomb is the sign of life. You have the resurrected staff of Aaron in number 17. In the New Testament, it's the resurrected Lord. Just as the life given to the rod of Aaron settled the question once for all in the old covenant who was going to intercede for the nation, Jesus' resurrection settled once for all who was the savior of the nation. So you have Moses being vindicated by the death of Korah and Datham and the plague that killed so many. Aaron was vindicated by the budding staff Jesus, he's vindicated by what? By his resurrection, right? Resurrection from the dead. So you have in Numbers 17, this budding staff, you have this Old Testament resurrection, don't you? Points us towards Jesus' resurrection. But for so many in our culture, in our country, Jesus is a stumbling block and the gospel is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.23 To the Jews, he's a stumbling block and to the Gentiles, he's an offense. But I'm a good Jew. I'm faithful. I am sincere. Good Gentile, good Jew, we all have to bow the knee to Christ and we have to yield ourselves to his lordship, confessing our sin and trusting his work on the cross for us in order to be saved. People don't like it when you say Jesus is the only way, but it's true nonetheless. Acts 4, 12, and we see this throughout the New Testament. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one way. There's no other name. 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Again, John 14, 6, Jesus sums it up, doesn't it? He says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we, we celebrated last week the resurrection of Christ and Jesus rose because judicially death could not hold him. The wages of sin is death. Jesus was innocent Tom Nelson he says 
It's like Velcro on a cue ball. It just wouldn't stick. Death couldn't hold him. His resurrection is a sign of God's approval, and only through Jesus can we come to God. Is Christianity the only way to God? It is. Is Jesus' resurrection enough of a sign to confirm that no one comes to the Father except through him? I think so. So the question is, by way of application as we close, how are you approaching the Lord? How are you getting it done? How are you drawing near to the Lord, to the holy God, the creator of the universe? Is it through your merit, through your good works? Is it through not doing bad stuff? but doing some, a bunch of pretty good stuff? How are you approaching the Father? Is it through your, your parents' faith? Well, you know, my parents have been that church my whole entire life. Is it through your lack of bad deeds? That approach, you're, you're saying it's my way. It's not God's way. You know what happens? What's the result? The ground opens up and you go down to Sheol. Fire comes out and consumes you. There's a plague. All those things are pointing towards the New Testament teaching of, of hell, right? Separation from the Lord. Yeah. All those things represent, point, they're a shadow of, of, the, of the New Testament teaching of hell. You can't approach the Lord your way. It's only God's way. It's God's way or it's no way. So let's pray. As we've got our heads bowed and we're, we're about to pray and close this thing down, maybe for us believers, let's just think about this as we're sitting there with our heads bowed and eyes closed, not distracted. Think about how we apply this to our lives, believer. We have a, a really important message to share because most people in our spheres of influence think that they're going to get to heaven and it, it may not be through faith in Christ. Many think that it's through other ways and there are, uh, in their mind, many other ways to get there. All roads in the end lead to the same place, so it's all okay. But that's not true. So maybe by way of application, believer, we need to be thinking about who we need to share this gospel message with. Maybe we need to be thinking about what we need to do to be able to share this message with those in our sphere of influence that are lost who may be trying to draw near to the Lord some other way other than through faith in Christ. And maybe we're here today and, and you're a, maybe you're a, a young boy or a young girl or maybe you're a student. You might be an adult and you're thinking, you know, I, I don't know the Lord. I want to encourage you to to do what Christ has commanded you to do, and that's repent, turn away from living life for yourself, turn away from doing what you want to do and, and trust Christ and what he did on the cross. Jesus died a, a terrible death. The Father poured out his wrath upon the Son. He was buried on the third day. He rose from the grave, the Bible says, for our justification so we could be made right with God. Maybe you've never repented and trusted Christ. That's the way. That's the way we are reconciled to this holy, wonderful, loving God. 
It's only through Jesus. Have you bowed the knee to Christ? Have you ever in your life surrendered your will to the Lord, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, I'm wrong, and I've done wrong, and I've been wrong, but you died for me. Jesus died for my sins. He died on the cross, and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose so I could be made right with God. God, I want to be right with you. Forgive me, Lord. I do trust Christ. I know that he died for me, and I know that he rose for me, and I want to live for you. Have you ever had that conversation with the Lord? Have you ever yielded your will to the Lord and submitted to him? If, that's, if you've never surrendered to the Lord, if you've never called out to the Lord in repentance and faith, I want to encourage you to do that right now. Cry out to the Lord. Some, a similar prayer as, as, I just, as I just voiced. Ask the Lord to save you. Father, we do thank you that you give us your word and so many of these events that took place hundreds and thousands of years ago that you are using today to, to get our attention, to open our eyes, to, to understand the gospel more clearly, to, to understand your will more clearly. And Father, I pray for us who are believers that, Lord, we would be encouraged as we leave to go out and share this gospel message with those who need to hear it. I pray that we as parents would be intentional this week about sharing this story with our children and with our spouses. Father, I pray that we would be intentional about sharing this story with our coworkers and our neighbors. And Father, for those that are here, maybe they're children, maybe they're adults, maybe they're students that have never repented, I pray that you would break their heart over their sin. Lord, that they wouldn't be gobbled up like Cor and Dathan when they breathe their last. Father, may we be so burdened for the lost that we share the gospel. And may today that those who are lost, may they surrender to the Lord and be saved. We know there's no other name. There's no other way. It's only by repenting and placing our faith in Christ. Father, may you do a work in, in sinners' hearts today and may people be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.